You're listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and how to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk. And now, enjoy Factual America with our host, Matthew Sherwood. Welcome to Factual America, a podcast that explores the themes that make America unique through the lens of documentary filmmaking. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and each episode is my pleasure to interview documentary filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Uh, Today, our topic is... uh, Capital punishment. Um, as a native uh, Texan, born and raised, I can say I know it's uh, it's certainly uh, when I am overseas and the, living here in in the UK, um, it is something that unfortunately people often think of when they think of my home state. They um, uh, were all a bunch of electric chair loving, gun toting nuts over there. Um, but I think uh, before we say any much more on that, uh, let me welcome our guest who is uh, Professor uh, Vivian Miller. She's an associate professor at the University of Nottingham. Uh, she's an expert on U.S. capital punishment. Uh, her research interests include the history of violence, crime, and criminal justice, especially in the southeastern United States, uh, post-Civil War era to the present, uh, which really narrows it down, <laughs> and uh, teaches courses on the history of crime and punishment in the U.S., uh, policing, Prohibition America, which might be another topic we talk about sometime. Uh, has written book, a book on violence, crime, and executive clemency in Florida. Uh, is developing an expertise in chain gangs. So maybe if we ever discuss Cool Hand Luke, we are documentary films, but we uh, maybe we can talk about that. And can I say, uh, and then I'll quickly welcome you to the show. Uh, I, I loved you. I'm inspired by your bio because it is probably one of the most honest bios of i'm 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 gonna have to change mine i mean temp booking driving tests for department of transport au pair and hotel worker in stuttgart there's a stuttgart reference in the film we're going to discuss today actually yes Yes. uh there's historical walking tour guide and ghost tour guide in edinburgh secretary of physics department at uh, fort financial uh florida state university clerical temp for a shipping company i mean I'm going to be, I don't know, it's not going to play in this in this era of LinkedIn and everything. It doesn't really play well, but I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to have to put in my experience as uh, working for the Texas Highway Department, uh, bearing roadkills on there. But uh, it's a, which is probably a horrible segue if it's even a transition, but let's, uh, uh, let's move to, um, to the topic today, which is capital punishment. Now you've, we asked, as you know, uh, well, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for to, having me. Yeah, you, well, it's it's a pleasure. Um, we uh, you've ch- we always ask our guests to choose a documentary. Uh, certainly, our uh, academics uh, use a lot of these uh, use documentaries these days as part of their uh, uh, part of teaching their courses. And I want to thank you for in- introducing me to Life and Death Row. Um, it, that's a series that's on uh, BBC Three, I believe. But this one, Life and Death Row Mass Execution, we're going to narrow it down on episode one, but there's a four-parter. Uh, it's on, uh, now this is late November 2019. It's still available on iPlayer for you here in the UK. And if you have a TV license, I need to throw that in. But uh, it's, uh, I don't know how much longer it will be there, but it's definitely worth a look. Um, it's nominated for BAFTA for Best Factual Series. Director is Miles Blade and Real. And 
enough of me talking. Um, so, uh, Vivian, why did you choose this film, or why do you use this when you're teaching your students? I think it um, shows many of the complicated and complex issues around lethal injection and capital punishment in the contemporary United States. Mm. And it gives a sense of the emotions on both sides of the argument, pro and for, mm. um, and against the death penalty. And it gives a sense of the sort of emotional toll on the condemned men and the mm. victims' families that kind of years of waiting for executions and the decision to execute takes on those different actors in the system. I mean, I was very impressed because you never know what you're going to get with some of these types of films. And uh, from the very beginning about how um, just balanced it is yes. and objective and just showing you the emotions on both sides of the, of all sides of the argument. Um, so maybe for those, there's probably a lot of our listeners here and, and viewers have not seen it. Uh, so what is, what's this film about? The governor of Arkansas um, signed death warrants for eight men to be executed within a 10-day period in April 2017, largely because the state supplies of one of the three drugs that are, is used in lethal injection um, was about to run out. So there was time pressure to um, have these executions go ahead. So the film series takes you through mm. the stories of the condemned men, their crimes, um, their appeals for clemency. Um, it takes you through the different campaigning groups um, for and against the death penalty. And it also takes you through the kind of emotional journey of the victims, families, mm. and gives you a sense of the kind of complicated legal, mm. moral, social and other factors that are involved in these mm. kind of decisions. But this was a mass execution mm. to take place in one state in one particular month yeah. in, in 2017, which made it quite a unique mm. set of events. And it drew international as well as yeah. national attention to the state of Arkansas. And for those, uh, you know, for some of our listeners uh, who need maybe a little perspective, Arkansas is the uh, state where Bill Clinton was governor from sort of 79 to... 92 with a two-year interruption there towards towards the beginning um yet he himself has some famous cases of him uh uh going ahead and uh, pulling the trigger if you will on a on an execution so um uh, i think i completely agree i think I, I don't know if i could anyone could say it any better than you've put it but we do have a clip here of the lawyer uh for three of the inmates because there's eight there's a certain order they know what order they're going to be executed in um um and it's compelling. I mean, this is not the point of our conversation today, but it is compelling cinema because I haven't watched episodes, two, I have to say, two through four yet, but I find myself think it's almost, you're almost looking at it as, as if it's drama. And I've even been, you can Google these cases and you kind of already know what's happening, but it's still, still compelling. So let's, let's go to that clip of, uh, with Jess, Jeff Rosenweig, lawyer for the three inmates. Arkansas is planning to execute eight people in a 10-day period. The rationale for this is that one of the three drugs they are intending to use is uh, going to expire uh, on April the 30th. And so there's a rush to execute them uh, before that time. Uh, the drug companies are uh, loath uh, to have their uh, products used for executions. And so the governor does not know if and when they will ever be able to get more drugs. 
how long have you got until the first execution? The first execution is uh, April 17th. Uh, the first of my three clients is set for April 20th. Stacy Johnson was convicted of the April 1st, 1993 murder of Carol Heath of D. Queen. Prosecutor Brian Cheshire says it's time for justice. Uh, it was a very horrific murder that was done in the presence of the victim's two minor children that were hiding in a closet. I don't see how anybody could have a heart that could have done what this man did. Carol Heath was found dead with her throat cut in her D-Queen duplex. Authorities say her six-year-old daughter identified Johnson in a photo lineup. He was convicted by a jury trial twice. In both trials, he was sentenced to death. There's no doubt in my mind this man is a very, very dangerous man and uh, would be a danger for the same events occurring if he was allowed to be walking our streets. Stacey Johnson's the only one of the eight who has a serious guilt-innocence issue. The issue in his case was this. There was a, a child in the home who was allegedly an eyewitness. The question is, was she? So I think that's uh, that gives you an idea of what this is all about. I think we're, for me, uh, as someone who's lived over in the UK now for uh, upwards of 17, 18 years, uh, it, it seems to me, and we're going to get to this more later in the, in, the, in the podcast, it seems to me the whole debate's maybe shifted a little bit. And what I found interesting, what I was not aware of, I mean, I'm old enough and I was a, as, as listeners may know, I was a bit of a geeky news junkie as a little kid, so I remember things that kids that age should not remember. And I remember when there was a moratorium on the death penalty and then it got reinstated. And, you know, then you had this up, you know, and then it sort of rapid increase in the use of the death penalty up until sort of 2000 era. And now it's kind of coming down again. But this whole dynamic of, of, of especially when it comes to lethal injection, is an interesting one. And it seems to me that it's kind of shifting the debate a little bit. But before we go into that, I think... Um, Let's go to the let's let's maybe t go back to sort of first principles. Um, why does the death penalty endure in the U.S.? I mean, there's 56 countries, mostly Asia and Africa, who still have the death penalty. Um, well, still use it. Uh, even Russia is de facto abolitionist; they haven't used it in 100, over 10 years. Um, use the U.S. is the only Western country to implement it regularly. Uh, although we've got countries like Japan and Singapore, where in fact Japan has broad support for it. And it's it's a topic that's come up in the the Pope's visiting Japan right now, and it's and it's come up. Um, but let's get your uh, insights. What do you think? Why does it endure in the U.S. and not elsewhere? There's still significant public and political support for the death penalty in the United States. Mm. Um, the death penalty has become very politicized, particularly in the last thirty to forty years, mm. and it's very difficult to be elected to any kind of significant office, state office, unless you have um, a record of being tough on crime, and that includes being quite strong on the death penalty. Now there are massive regional variations, and those debates well, yeah. play much more um, successfully in the southern region. Mm. and in parts of the Midwest than yeah. they do in other parts of the United States. 
But I think, um, you know, even though opinion polls show that support for the death penalty is declining mm. and people are much more interested in alternatives such as life without parole with restitution, for example, mm -hmm. there's still a lot of groundswell support for um, death sentences being imposed and executions being carried out. And I think um, any kind of hesitation can be quickly offset if there's a mass shooting or a particular mm. heinous murder case mm. that makes its way through the system. Mm. So I think um, it is simply a larger degree of public and politi mm. political support in kind of key states such as Texas, Florida, mm. Virginia, yeah. Oklahoma, mm -hmm. those big active execution states. I mean, we're going to talk about it later. We are going to talk a little bit more about the regional differences, but uh, you know, I've got a, a colored coded map here and it looks like a map of the, the old Confederacy, right? you know, mostly there, mm -hmm. with a few exceptions, sure. you know, and that's where they're, it's still actively used elsewhere. It's, there's either de facto moratoriums or proper right. moratoriums, or it's been, been abolished. But I think, to talk about this support, I think I think what the film does very well, it, it splits them up, but they're towards the beginning. I think it's about 12 minutes in. I think there's a good clip there where we um, we see uh, see people express their reasons for why they they support the uh, the death penalty, including um, the one of the victim's uh, daughters, mm. um, who's uh, plays a key. She's one of the main characters actually in this film, and how she feels about this. So um, let's watch that clip now. He just shot her in the back of the head for no reason. It was just horrible. He's the one that saw my mom last. And that to me is so upsetting that that's the last person that she saw. That's why I want him to be put to death and just to get this over with. What am I going to tell this man who, who lost his wife? What am I going to tell these daughters who lost their mother? I was a coward. I didn't care about your family. I didn't stop to think about the harm that I was doing. I know what I did was a very terrible and what will Don Davis's death achieve? Probably nothing. You know, I mean, it's not going to prevent other people from killing. That's not how I look at it. It's truly to give the family, the people that loved her, peace. That's what it is for me. And you think you will get that? Oh, yeah. Uh, so that's a, it's a very interesting clip. I think it can, there's always a danger of catering to stereotypical views of, of people, and especially Americans and views on the death penalty. But I think that's a, uh, because what I will say, and maybe we'll hopefully have time later, there's also a second segment where they talk to people who, Hey, for lack of a better way of putting it, seem like a bunch of rednecks who talk about all the reasons why they think it's wrong. Mm. You know, so I, I think it's an interesting. It's it's not so black and white, cut no, and dry uh, of a of a topic. Uh, you've already uh, 
I mean, before we talk about why is it so prevalent in the, in the South, especially, I mean, what's, because it ties into this film, we've got guys who've been on death row for 25, yes. 27 years. I mean, now the death penalty has been around again since what, 1976. Mm-hmm. Um there's been various, we won't bore you with all the, you know, we could do a whole litany of legal cases. Uh, but since, um, what is it, Furman versus George in 72, when it, that's when they instituted the moratorium. And, you know, all these moratoriums were sort of more of a, it's more for legalistic reasons, less so than maybe, you know, sort of humanitarian a bit. There was a bit of the Eighth Amendment involved in that. But why, how are these guys allowed to just why are they sitting on death row for so long? I mean, if you've got states that are mm-hmm. obviously have no qualms about doing the death penalty, do you, you know, why, how, why do they stay on death row for so long? I know you need a, a governor to sign a death warrant to kind of get the case mm-hmm. moving. And um, some governors are simply more cautious than others. They mm-hmm. want the cases to go through the appellate process mm-hmm. in a timely fashion. Um, at various stages in a condemned person or an offender's um, criminal justice life, their mm-hmm. case might be appealed. Mm-hmm. There might be consequences that have to be followed up from that appeal. Um, maybe the governor's not in a rush mm-hmm. to sign a death warrant. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of different factors, but it is an extraordinarily long, drawn-out process. Mm-hmm. And you get a, a, a situation which I think is very well illustrated in this series that the guys that are being executed are different people Mm. to the men, often young men, that committed these crimes 25, 27 years ago. Mm. And in many ways, they've kind of undergone a reformation or a rehabilitation within prison, Mm. which also um, can have quite strong moral consequences Mm. on um, the victim's family as well as their family and the decision to kind of go ahead with the execution, et cetera. And I think this series, I think it's a very good point. One thing that was striking me is, you know, some of these lawyers are making arguments and you're like, you're only making this argument now about his mental state? Why wasn't that made 20 years ago or what, you know? I mean, they're all finding, trying to find techniques to just delay the execution by another whatever it is, so they can get beyond this deadline. Because what we'll talk about later is that the fact is what's pushing this is that the state's supply of the drug, right. as you said, is is expiring. You I know? think in some of the cases, um, and this is not just an Arkansas thing, there, are, there were problems with the original trials and mm. convictions. There are notorious cases where um, defense lawyers have fallen asleep or been drunk mm. during trial. And um, or the kind of mental competency of the defendant wasn't properly assessed or various aspects about the kind of eyewitness testimony or the forensics have have shown become problematic. And so those challenges kind of come later Mm. on in the process. So I think that's another reason why the, the, the process becomes elongated, if you like. And I guess we've also got this, the advent of DNA and, right. and things. And, you know, you can you can find the Wikipedia lists of all the people, you know, I think they're all men, but maybe there's a woman or two in there. But, uh, but of all the inmates who were on death row, who've now been exonerated, largely in many cases because of DNA evidence right. coming to light. Um, and I think, I think even that's how the moratorium in Illinois happened, because the governor kind of saw the light, if you will, and decided, wait a minute, there's too many of these on, 
didn't want it didn't want it on his hands uh, basically and there's also the problem that um in some cases you have um defendants who have committed a crime mm. together but one person's ended up with a life sentence the other mm. person's ended up with a death sentence so there are all sorts of issues around equity mm. as well that um have to be addressed yeah. during the appeals process yeah. i think um um you know i think also what this film does is whether the director knew he was getting this or not the eight at least what i've seen so far are a very good representation of the different types of cases right. you're looking at, aren't? Don't you think? Because because yes. there's some that are just you know, some it's very obvious they know we know they're guilty. Some then later have you find one's got mental mm-hmm. issues, so he's a schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is fits in that sort of DNA right. conversation, um, but he's also African American, which also is another element Indeed. of this discussion. Yes. yes. Um, I mean, there's no question that the death penalty is still applied differently Mm. in terms of kind of the racial dynamics. It's much more likely that a black defendant with a white victim will end up with a capital Mm. conviction, a death sentence and an execution. So I think uh, African-Americans are about 12% of the population, but they're what, something about a third or more of the the men on, on death row. Yes, forty yeah. percent. Forty percent. So yeah, yeah. I think on that note, we'll we'll uh, take a little break, but we'll be back shortly uh, to further uh, discuss this topic with uh, Dr. Miller. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases and upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. And now, back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. Uh, Dr. Miller, uh, we've been talking about um, uh, Life and Death Row, this film, and uh, sort of generally about the uh, capital punishment and the death penalty in the United States. Uh, I think it'd be a good time to, this takes place in Arkansas, um, a, a state of the old South. Um, I mean, you lived, you've lived in Florida, I know. I mean, why is this still so prevalent in the South? What is it about the Southern United States that makes them more likely to to want to, you know, use the death penalty? I think there's a combination of historical and current factors. I mean, two of the major execution states, Texas mm-hmm. and Florida, are in the deep south and you've also got oklahoma virginia alabama georgia etc they have long histories of being active execution states Mm. um and although there were moratoria in the 60s and the 1970s in many ways they have not um embraced those kind of moratorium arguments in the same way as um the northeast and the west for example I think there's a long legacy of kind of racial discrimination, racism in the mm. criminal justice system, which has played out in many murder, rape and other trials throughout the 19th, 20th and into the 21st centuries. Mm. Um, the southern region has the highest homicide rate of all mm. the regions. Mm. And I think that's still important in people's calculations when it comes to the death penalty and death sentences and so on. Um, 
the South in 2019 is a very different place to the South in 1959 or 1909. It's been driven by huge sunbelt growth in the last 50 to 60 years, large numbers of migrants, immigrants, um, that's changed the kind of politics from a kind of traditional one-party democratic Mm. state to... um, in some ways, very conservative Republican states. Mm. And the Republicans took up the mantle of kind of law and order politics very strongly in the 70s and 80s. Mm. And I think that combination of kind of long-term Democratic Party support for being tough on crime Mm -hmm. with a a kind of insurgent conservative Republicanism has kind of driven a lot of the the political and public support for the death penalty and its retention in those southern states. I think the combination, as I said, with high homicide rates, kind of different racial, ethnic immigration factors all come into play in that region. I think it's a, I think it's a very uh, interesting point. I mean, over the years I've seen, I mean, I would say sometimes not very serious attempts to explain it, um, whether it's climate, you know, being hotter, whether it's the fact that the South was traditionally Scotch-Irish immigration. I've seen all kinds right. of ex- explanations, you know, for why this could be. I mean, I think it would be good to even almost take a little bit of a step back because what strikes me is, yeah, you can look at a map of the United States and yes, technically 31 states out of the 50 are death penalty states. But then if you look at uh, two things, states where there is actually uh, abolition, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not it's not even a red-blue Trump not trumped kind of thing. We've got Midwestern states like Michigan I, has never had a capital punishment case. You've got Iowa that's, uh, you know, these, you've got these states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan that went, that have moratorium. You have Pennsylvania that has a de facto, or has actually mm-hmm. a for, formal moratorium on it. Yet you've got even a more liberal state like Oregon that's kind of gone back and forth sure. over the years. It's kind of a, there's an interesting sort of uh, dynamic mm-hmm. there. We still have the 16 states that still practice it. Mm-hmm. Arkansas, you know, it's very um, it's very dominated by South and being a Texan, I don't consider Texas part of the old South. But, you know, that's that's just my own uh, biases. But actually, Arkansas has now run out of the drugs. Right. So, I mean, I think this maybe even gets us to a point to look at where I think this has been this big change, this whole thing about um, how the the how capital punishment is implemented uh, with this lethal injection and how that is that is being playing out and how it's it's taking a turn especially with what's happening with big pharma on this so you do could you tell us maybe a little something about sort of what's been happening in the last sort of 10 15 years with this whole debate around lethal injection even Um, so you need three drugs to carry out a lethal injection execution Mm -hmm. And certainly in the last 10 to 15 years, there have been major supply problems with one or two Mm. of the drugs as um, pharmaceutical companies are not interested in having their drugs used for this purpose, as you might understand. Um, The the supply routes from Europe and other parts of the world have been curtailed largely Mm. through European Union restrictions and other restrictions. And so... The states have um, increasingly relied on drugs that are difficult to obtain. And there's not 
I don't know how much experimentation or research there is into kind of death penalty mm. methods mm. in the contemporary United States, mm. but it does look like lethal injection is sort of at the end of its road yeah. in many respects. But we've kind of been here before because okay. the electric chair came in in the 1890s yeah. as hanging was being discredited yeah. as a kind of old-fashioned painful right. unacceptable method of execution although it does continue in the south it, it does I've... in the 1910s and the 1920s well and there's even been one as recently as uh, this is in august this year yes that's right a fellow in tennessee because he well we can you know go into that a little bit in a few minutes but he some in some places they can choose their they method. They choose the method, yeah. that's right. And then the electric chair was the dominant method for many states, particularly in the South for much of the twentieth mm. century, although other states such as California mm. um and Mississippi opted for gas, lethal yeah. gas in um the nineteen thirties onwards. But lethal injection has been the main kind of method, I think, for the last twenty years. Some states did shift quite late from the electric chair to lethal injection but it's always been seen as a kind of more modern more humane exactly. method yeah. but there's a lot of evidence that uh, as was shown in one of the episodes that there are problems with lethal injection executions taking yeah. hours and being equally problematic as the electric chair or those other well, I mean, maybe that brings us to the point that, uh, so we know it's about this drug uh, in this particular case in Arkansas, it's midazolam, but we've got the case in 2014 in Arizona, yes. Joseph Wood. Um, I mean, I think you've, you've just now, you've alluded to it, but the whole point of reason lethal injection came into to being was that it was supposed to be the humane way. It was, you know, you couldn't get more humane way, if there is such a thing, of, of putting someone to death, yet like you said, there's probably not been much research into this, mm. but the, we have the case of Joseph Wood, and I know that they make some mention of some others, um, where um, it was far from right. humane. There have been a lot of botched lethal injection it, it, executions, indeed. problems with veins yeah. not being available, and inmates not reacting to the drugs in the way that was expected, yeah. etc. Some states have controversially experimented with two drugs, yeah. um, there's been moves to use one drug, etc. So I think they'll keep going with it as long as they can. But um, the line between cruel and unusual punishment and supposedly humane punishment is incre increasingly becoming blurred, I think. And then this also, it gets back to the US Constitution, does it? Because mm. there is the Eighth Amendment right. that says, if, if I'm correct, uh, that you can't have cruel and unusual punishment. That's right. And so that's where all the arguments now, it's not whether a death penalty itself is cruel or unusual but that the methods mm -hmm. and i think is that where the, most of the legal battles are these these days i think there's a there are a lot of different aspects to the cruel and unusual punishment argument there are arguments around the method but also the way in which it's um applied to specific groups of defendants or condemned men and women it, yes and yeah indeed I think before we get away from this this part of the topic, I think this might not be a bad time to have a one more clip from the film, uh, where we have a there's a scene there where um, I think it's a group advocacy group uh, for abolition, uh, and they're talking about Joseph Wood mm. and his uh, and there's a woman in the audience who talks about the uh, sure. about that. So uh, let's let's watch that clip now.
My name is Faranda Brassfield. I'm the Executive Director of the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. And again, I'd like to thank all of you for coming out today and showing your support for the cause to abolish the death penalty and to stop executions now. We are set to make history around the world for something that is atrocious, for an assembly line of executions. And we need to pull on the governor to ask him to have a change of heart. A lot of, is this on? Yes. I think it is extremely likely that these executions, if they go forward, are going to go horribly wrong and are not going to end up the way the governor is expecting them to go. The rush to use this drug is, you know, bad for the, the dignity that they're trying to do eight and ten days, but it's also a terrible idea because it's a terrible drug. A lot of the midazolam executions have gone wrong, and the problem is midazolam is not an anesthetic drug. In a surgical setting, it's used as a pre-anesthetic. It's a sedative. And so it cannot induce general anesthesia, which is how they're planning to use it or what, how they think it's going to work. But the second drug that's used paralyzes all the voluntary muscles in your body, including the muscles necessary to breathe. And so what happens is that the person um, feels like they're suffocating. It's called air hunger. And that's where you've seen these gasping, coughing, horrible deaths like Joseph Wood in Arizona, where it took two hours for him to die. A torturous, horrible death. So we shouldn't be in a hurry to use it. Thank you. It's pretty much like a slaughter line. I mean, there's no dignity at all. In it. And it's just inhumane the way they wanted to have. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and I, I think as this film points, there's a lot of different ways of looking at this. We have the victims, we have those who are friends and family of the, of the uh, inmates and the, and the perpetrators, but there's a lot of emotions, but I think that is a very good, uh, you know, regardless that does, that is a sort of horrific uh, scene we have described there of how this man was, was, you know, put to death far from, you know, being humane. Um, and, and with that in mind, um, I mean, do you think that the tide is turning or and I hate to say it, but if it isn't, what is the future? What, what if it's not going to be lethal injection? If they're running out of drugs and people won't sell them, the big farmer won't sell them the drugs. Well, what is the future of, of capital punishment in the U.S.? Difficult to say, isn't it? Yeah. Because the assumption is that there will be increasing numbers of states that will impose moratoria no. or will just stop executing. I mean, New York had the classic death penalty in the 90s when it reinstated the death penalty. Yeah. I think 300 people were sentenced to death, mm. but no one was ever executed. Yeah. And then, of course, that statute was appealed. And maybe the modern death penalty is just to have people 
on death row for indefinite periods of time rather than actively executing. I mean, there will still be states, I think, such as Texas and possibly Oklahoma that Mm. continue to try and carry out executions. But um, I think there's a lot of public support for looking at alternatives. Mm. Uh, But public support can be quite fickle. It can change. And we may be in a situation 10 years' time where we're back in the late 1990s with executions rising and public support for that. So I think it's difficult to predict. In the 60s, everyone thought the United States was heading towards abolition. It was falling in line with those other Western industrialized nations. So it was about the same time the right. Britain and... I yeah. Think, is it even the 80s before France? I mean, France had the guillotine yeah. until... Yeah, France is quite lifetimes. late. Yeah. Um, but that changed within, you know, a generation. Yeah. And so I think it's difficult to predict where the United States will be in mm. 10 or 20 years' time. But certainly more politicians, more governors are becoming increasingly vocal about their moral and personal um, issues with the application of the death penalty and the kinds of problems around innocence, inequitable um, sentencing, racial factors, um, and are becoming much more um, or much bolder in their willingness to halt executions or to kind of put mm. those questions out there yeah. for public debate. Because indeed, the number of executions has been trending downward mm-hmm. since about 2000. It quite, has. Quite sharply. Quite sharply. Yeah. There was 98, I think, in 1999 and 25 last year. Yes. I'm so, looking at a chart now right. and that's, that seems about right. Yeah. Which is a significant drop. Yeah. And most of those executions tend to be concentrated treated in a very small number of states. I mean, what strikes me, I mean, this is maybe going down a little bit of a tangent here, but we've got this, I'm looking at the same chart, and you're a historian, I know your specialty is in the area you're in. Why, you know, this thing, the death penalty, pretty level, but then you get to sort of the late 1800s up until sort of early 19th, well, middle of the 20th century. Why did it just, just, it's almost go straight up. What was, was, what was driving that do you do you have anything to say on so what the, would you say about that in the united states <clears throat> between about 1850 and 1950 mm-hmm. yeah. um i think there are different factors so in the south you have the end of the american civil war the yeah. abolition of slavery and yeah. the use of criminal justice systems to control free black um, emancipated so, populations. So lynchings would be in that? No, legal executions. Legal so you've executions. got legal okay. executions okay. as well as lynchings as kind yeah. of quite striking, yeah. horrible methods yeah. of kind of racial control, intimidation and terror. Um, there's a lot of public support for mm. capital punishment in the late 19th, early 20th century. You've got kind of rising immigration, mm. um, changing kind of economic um political communities, um, anxieties over kind of murder, other violent crimes, Mm. etc. And the way to control that, there's a lot of support for kind Mm. of quite draconian measures to do that. Um, There's a regional shift in the early 20th century. A lot of the northern states 
become less willing mm -hmm. to apply the death sentences and executions in comparison to the southern region. So there are differences. But in the 1920s, 1930s, you've got the rise of prohibition mm -hmm. and the kind of gang violence that accompanies mm -hmm. that. In the 1930s, the kind of um, the war on crime against the bandits and the armed robbers mm -hmm. and the kidnappers, etc. And again, a lot of support for kind of tough measures uh, to deter those types of offender. But then, you know, because I'm trying to build almost mm. to see the arch of history here. So then sort of 1930s, 40s, it looks like, about the, about the time of the Second World War. Sure. It just drops sharply. Yes, it does. Almost to nothing, even before... Um, the Supreme Court rules mm -hmm. in 72. So what was, I guess what I'm trying to get is, are we are we at another inflection point? Maybe are we heading towards this, what you say, this de facto moratorium on the death penalty? Because it's happened, that, sure. that has happened before. Sure. I think the major um, factors from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s um, relate to the kind of the end of World War Two and kind of changing attitudes toward violence mm -hmm. and the kind of use of violence to correct violence. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of revulsion at um, particularly the use of lethal gas, mm -hmm. even though some states are continuing to adopt that. But the other big factor is the rise of the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. which um, drew attention to discriminatory practices, not just for African-Americans, right. but also lower class white yeah. defendants. Um, there's a whole kind of um, set of arguments in the 50s and 60s around um, the lack of legal representation for right. yeah. capital and non-capital defendants, um, the ways in which police conduct interrogations are under scrutiny. So all that kind of um, focus on civil rights translates into greater scrutiny of criminal justice systems and the ways in which um, lengthy sentences as well as death sentences are being imposed on particular groups of offender. There's a huge outcry um, at the discriminatory sentencing of um, rape defendants. Mm. There are very few southern states that um, convict um, white men of raping black women, mm -hmm. but they're very willing to execute black men convicted mm -hmm. of raping white women. So those mm -hmm. kind of discriminatory practices are much more under scrutiny in the 50s and 60s. And I think in also in the 60s, you've got the rise of kind of new ideas about how the law should work and how um, defendants should be represented mm -hmm. more fairly in court. And all those things come into play in that time period. And so, as we've already talked about, then we had again this rise in the sure. use of the death penalty up until, as I think, as you said, peaked in I think around 1999. It's been coming down sharply since then, and um, maybe we're at this other this as you've we've described it, um, possibly heading towards another period, if if not actual abolition of sort of de facto abolition, where. Um, even those states that want to implement mm. it are maybe not even in a position where they, they can, either from a, well, just from a purely logistical standpoint, not being able to get their hands on the, on the, uh, the drugs that they need to, to implement, you know, to carry out these, these sentences. Sure. I think, though, that um, it's the exonerations mm -hmm. that have, have really, really turned the tide okay. 
in recent decades and um, the fact that there are over 160 people who've mm. been liberated yeah. from death row because it's been proven beyond a reasonable doubt yeah. that their convictions were completely unsafe. I think that's led to a whole series of um, a lot of public worry about you know, whether the death penalty is being applied properly. Yeah. I think one shouldn't underestimate the kind of power mm. of that exoneration mm. um, movement yeah. and the kind of related questions it poses about, um, you know, the drugs, yeah. but also about whether um, the price of innocence mm. in many respects, is mm. it better to um, save guilty people yeah. because you're fearful about executing the innocent yeah. Or should one sacrifice innocent exactly. people exactly. in the the quest yeah. to um, demonstrate that we're tough on crime, that we need this deterrent, uh, and all those other kind of law and order arguments? And I think that uh, nicely takes us back to the film itself, which I think, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, I highly recommend. Um, not to give away the ending, but I can tell you one of the cases, I won't tell you know what everything that's happened, but I know one of the cases that it's still this whole idea of the DNA evidence is sure. still playing out today, um, which is very to you know topical in what, we, what we've been discussing. Um, again, this uh, for those of you um, who are very interested in looking at this, I highly recommend Life and Death Row Mass Execution episode. Well, we looked at episode one, but that's just the first of a four-parter. And I wanted to um, also um, thank... Uh, uh, Dr. Miller, for coming on to the Thank podcast, you. it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. No, it's a it's a it's a weighty topic to be discussing at uh, this or you know on Saturday morning, but uh, we do very much appreciate it uh, for our listeners and and viewers actually because we're on on uh, video as well. If you're uh, keeping track, you may have noticed that things might look a little different. So a little shout out to uh, Soho Radio for uh, for hosting us here, and um, again to remind you that. Uh, that wherever you uh, happen to listen to podcasts, please do remember to like us and share us uh, with your friends. And um, without further ado, this is uh, Factual America signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guest, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.